0: It's a single verse, verse 7 of Exodus chapter 20, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And let us pray together. Dear Lord, we are thankful for your word as always. We are especially thankful for these Ten Commandments, and we ask you, O God, that as you have uh, transcribe them upon uh, the stone which sat in the ark of the tabernacle and then on the pages of scripture and most especially upon our hearts uh, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us that you might then now illumine that word and enable us to better keep it. We ask it in Jesus name. Amen. Well, here is a command, the third commandment, which has to do with God's name. And in particular, how we use it, the name of God, and then how God feels about the one who misuses it. Well, let me ask you, did you ever think that God's name was so important that it was worthy of its own commandment, that it would make God's top ten list of things which were important to him and which he wished to find in his people? And that the use of God's name as one of the Ten Commandments would become, therefore, A hallmark of Christian piety. In other words, that we can tell who the true sons of God are simply by how they use the name of God. Well, stop and think for a moment why that might be, especially given where we are in Scripture. We are in the book of Exodus. And have you noticed in Exodus how much God makes of the name? In fact, I would say without any hesitation at all that the name Yahweh or the Lord is without question the great theme of the book of Exodus. The name Yahweh, I am who I am or simply I am, is a revelation of who he is. Again, translated variously, either Yahweh or the Lord. This name is something that belongs to him and no one else. In this sense, the name itself is holy because it reveals a God who is holy. It reveals God to us in his essential nature and his fundamental character. And so God says these pivotal moments to Moses, if you remember early on in chapter three, when God tells Moses at the burning bush to take uh, off the shoes of his feet because the ground upon which he was standing was holy. It was holy because of what God was about to reveal to Moses. He was about to reveal to him fundamentally the name by which he was named, the name of God. Chapter three, verse 13. Moses said to God, indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever and this is my memorial to all generations. So you understand uh, before Moses ever goes on this great journey and mission that the Lord undergirds the mission itself and he encourages and strengthens Moses to do it. By revealing to him the name. And this is what he was to say to the people. To strengthen and encourage them. In a moment of doubt. This is what the Lord said to Moses chapter 6. Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will let them go. And with a strong hand he will drive them out of his, of his land. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Lord, I was not known to them. I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land Cain and the land of their pilgrimage in which they were strangers. And I've also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians kept in bondage. And I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm with great uh, judgments. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. And so, so much of uh, Exodus then becomes a revelation of what this means. We see again and again the refrain, even in those eight verses I just read of chapter 6, I am the Lord, or so that you may know that I am the Lord, or so that Pharaoh might know that I am the Lord. Of course, my favorite passage with regard to this, I've read it many times already, is found in... Exodus chapter 34, uh, but even before that, we read in chapter 33, Moses saying to the Lord, show me your glory. And also uh, verse 13. Now, therefore, I pray if I found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I may know you that I might find grace in your sight and consider that this is the nation uh, that this nation is your people. So God says in verse 19 Verse 18, he says, show me your glory. Verse 19, this is chapter 33. I will make all my goodness pass before you. I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. That is how God shows him his glory. And so we see in chapter 34, then verses five through seven. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth keeping mercy for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin by no means clearing the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation and so you see that's how God answers the prayer that's how he reveals his glory to Moses whether in chapter 3 or in chapter 34 it's by revealing the name Not just saying the name, but telling us what it means. And so revealing himself in the name. All that I've read here is just a snapshot. But again, I would say very clearly, this is the great theme of the book of Exodus. And it's the great thing that Israel is enabled to experience in the wilderness. They were given a glimpse, he says, chapter six, which I read just a moment ago into what even Abraham And the fathers, the patriarchs, were not privy to know by his name, the Lord. He did not make himself known to them. I think that was verse three of chapter six. But to them, he did. And the whole book, as I say, and the whole experience becomes uh, an unfolding of this great theme. And so, however, man might feel about the name of God, the Lord. And I can think we I think we can fairly say that man uh, doesn't regard it very highly. He doesn't value God's name uh, at all and we will consider ways in which this is obvious. However much that might be true, it is certainly true at the same time that God values his own name and he values it very greatly. It's something to him which is very precious and equally that it's something that he wishes to be precious to us, so that our piety is seen as with all the commandments. When our values reflect God's values, which is to say, when we value God's name, too, even though the world doesn't, that it's something which is extremely precious to us, something which is holy and so forth. We'll get into that. But turning to the New Testament, there's a crucial statement that also points in this direction. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is describing, as you know, to the disciples uh, life in the kingdom of God he is describing the way of life and the values which are found in his true disciples. And you remember in the middle portion, chapter six, he teaches us how to pray, commending to us a religion which is not putting on a display for men, but doing things in secret where only God can see. And so he tells us in his description of prayer not to, not to heap up empty phrases. So that God would hear us for the length of our prayers. Another way you could uh, paraphrase that is not to heap up vain phrases. Not to pray in vain. No, Jesus is telling us in our prayers to get to the point. Again, not to think that God hears us for the length of our prayers. But to pray for the things that are really important. But then the question becomes, what is really important? Well, the first thing he says after our address, our address to our Father who art in heaven, our Father who art in heaven, what's the first petition? It's, hallowed be thy name. That is the first thing Jesus teaches his disciples to pray in this great prayer. And of course, you know, uh, well, we recite the Lord's Prayer, but it's a model of prayer. And these are the kinds of things that the Christians who are longing for the kingdom would pray for or they ought to pray for. And so we pray it as we recite it, but we also ought to pray it in our own private prayers. But did we ever stop to consider what it is exactly we're saying when we pray the first petition, hallowed be thy name? Well, I don't plan to preach a sermon on what that phrase means. I believe I did so at one point a few years ago. But it is clear once again by that prayer, as with all the other petitions, that we are asking God to express his own values in our lives, to hallow his name, to bring his kingdom and to cause his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. The first three petitions, it is a prayer for God to act in the lives of men, especially the lives of ourselves. And part of the action we are seeking is for his name to be hallowed. Hallowed be thy name. You see, it's something we're asking God to do. We're asking God to cause it to be regarded by man as that which is holy. And that it would appear to us as that which is holy as it did to Israel in all of its holiness and glory. Show me thy glory. And may it appear in thy name. That is the prayer of Moses and that is the prayer of the children of God in every age. In a sense, you see, we're hallowing it just by praying the prayer itself, just by recognizing before the Lord that this is something which is important, that the name ought to be hallowed. And so my first point is just for us to see the importance of the name itself, the name of God, that though the world does not regard it as as something of any value at all. We as God's people would. Is there anything like it? Anything at all like the name of God? Anything so fit to convey his being and his glory? The Lord. Here is something we recognize that is holy. Something that ought to be honored and revered by the people of God. Even as the heathens curse and revile it. And so, you see, following our rules for interpretation, which I laid down, I think, two sermons ago, we understand now what it is that God is requiring of us in this commandment. He wants us to hallow it, to regard it as something that is holy. Well, let us just work through the shorter catechism here. Question 54. What is required in the third commandment? Answer, the third commandment requireth the holy and reverent use of God's names Titles, attributes, ordinances, words, and works. So you see, God is saying that he wants us to honor his name. To realize that all that he is in himself and to us is found in his name. His titles, his attributes, his ordinances, his word, his works. All of these are to be honored by us. And treated with reverence because they are all connected with him. Which is to say connected with his name. I like how Calvin puts it. He says the aim of the commandment is to show that the Lord wills the majesty of his name to be holy and sacred to us. The majesty of his name to be holy and sacred to us. Now, it's going too far. I think we would agree, as the Jews sometimes do, to say that the name is too sacred ever even to be uttered. Nowhere does scripture ever give us this impression. In fact, it actually encourages us. To use the name of the Lord, but only in the proper manner to his name belongs all glory, praise and honor. Didn't we just sing that God, my king, thy might confessing ever will I bless thy name. And we went on to do that for the entirety of the hymn. God wants us to speak his name, but to do so in a manner of praise, not through acts of impiety. While the heathens blaspheme his name. The godly magnify the majesty of it, as Calvin says, his name should be on our lips. The Jews are wrong in this, but only as an act of praise and anything else is to break the third commandment connected with this. Let us also realize is the name Jesus. The third commandment has to do with the name that is above all names, the name Jesus. Now, again, did you ever realize how much the New Testament makes Not just of his person, but of the name. Listen to a few statements. And I think you'll see that it is so. Acts chapter 4 verse 12. The apostles say, nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Or Philippians chapter 2 In that creedal statement uh, where uh, Paul is describing Christ's descent to this earth and then his ascent into heaven, we read this in verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Again, that is the name Jesus. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth. And of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And then finally, First Corinthians chapter twelve, verse three. And I, well, I'm in Second Corinthians, 1 uh, Corinthians chapter twelve. He says. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the spirit of God calls Jesus a curse. And no one says that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. You see, it's very clear from the standpoint of the New Testament that the name of Jesus is something which is very precious. Something which was deeply precious to these men who wrote the New Testament. That is to say something which is deeply precious to God himself. And also from the standpoint of the early church. Here is the sum and the essence of Christian profession in the first century, and it is so uh, still today. Jesus is Lord. That is the name which we have been considering in the book of Exodus is ascribed to him. Jesus is Lord Yahweh. And here is something Paul says that a man can only say by the Holy Spirit of God, which is in itself very telling, I think it is the influence of the Holy Spirit himself, who is also God who causes us to profess the name, to hallow and revere it in the highest possible way any man could in professing again. Jesus is Lord and thus to believe it so that we might have life in that name. John chapter 20, verse 31. But the bigger issue at stake, let us be honest, in the command is the prohibition. What is forbidden? God is saying uh, that's the second point. I won't read the shorter catechism. It's. Uh, I will read the Shorter Catechism again on the third point. But this, the next Shorter Catechism question is what is forbidden in the third commandment? Well, God is saying very clearly, do not take my name in vain ever. You shall not do it. You see, today people think it's such a small thing, a trivial matter to blaspheme the name, to treat it as something insignificant. But that is exactly what God is forbidding, the vain use of his name. Taking it lightly, using it as though it were nothing or worse, an object of jesting or scorn like it's a curse word. This is something God is saying that he hates and he especially hates to find it being done among us, his people. He hates to find us breaking the third commandment. We are the people who ought to know better. Yet the sad truth is I'm about to say is we break it all the time, too. Calvin, on the third commandment again, he says, it teaches us not to profane it out of either contempt or irreverence. Well, I think we need to be honest here and admit there is nothing so easy and so seemingly innocent as taking God's name in vain. There is no commandment we break with so little thought as the third commandment. We frankly do it all the time. I confess that I do it. We say things like gosh or jeez which is just short for God and Jesus. And, you know, that kind of clever sophistry is what the Pharisees did all the time. And which Jesus condemned in the Sermon on the Mount. They made slight alterations to their sins, thinking somehow that they escaped the searching nature of God's commandments. You see, I didn't say God. I said, gosh. I didn't break the third commandment. Well, soon we'll see one of the ways the Pharisees did something very similar. Again, clever sophistry, trying to sidestep the commandment, but giving our sinful flesh an opportunity still to break it. Well, what's even worse is the man who just blurts out the name of God as a kind of curse word, a word spoken in anger. And we sometimes do that, too, or treating God's name like a punchline in a joke. Lacking the fear of God, we speak of him too easily without restraint or wisdom, as Calvin says. Another common misuse of the name is when we do what I call baptizing our sin. So often a Christian will feel that he is in the right in some religious dispute when he might very well be in the wrong. And what he tends to do in that moment in question is something which is very reckless. He tends to invoke the name of God as though he were Martin Luther himself. This is something I've seen over and over again in my life or my time as a Christian. Christians who are doing something that isn't right, or at least it isn't quite clear. And that ought to be the very moment in which they exercise incredible restraint. And you try to tell them that maybe they better think twice. Maybe they haven't got a clear sense of the will of God. Maybe they are actually sinning. And yet, what do they say so often? God told me to do it. Or it's the will and the leading of God. And so they baptize their sin. Well, all I'm saying is that we ought to be careful, especially at moments where it isn't clear What it is we're doing. There is a very real danger, beloved, that we're just at times substituting the name of God himself for our own preferences. And that is surely to take his name in vain. But we should also see this prohibition more broadly. It, of course, refers to our speech, but it refers to far more to everything that has to do with the name of God. Every kind of vain use of the name, everything that dishonors it and makes it to appear to be a vain thing. One of the things that we find in scripture is that when we fail to honor God with our lives or with our conduct, when we live unrighteously, then his name is dishonored, whether we mean to or not. It's the very thing that happens the, the, the mouths of our enemies are filled with reproach. And so we become the occasion by which he is blasphemed. When we fail to do the will of God in any way, we dishonor the name we bear and so we, re- we bring reproach upon true religion and upon God himself. This is what uh, J. Dalma in his book on the Ten Commandments calls dishonoring God's reputation. Dishonoring God's reputation, which is a very good way, I think, of putting this point. That to dishonor his reputation by our lives, by sinful living, is to dishonor his name. We ought to think about in our living and our lives... The way our lives either commend or dishonor the name of God. And that's the kind of appeal that you find uh, throughout scripture, whether directly or indirectly. Think about the name you bear. Think about the cause of religion and ask yourself whether you are honoring or dishonoring it, whether you are showing to men the reality of religion and of the name or the opposite. First, Peter, chapter two, verse 11 Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. You see, we actually become instruments by which God is praised, even by his enemies. Jesus says the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 15 for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. That's First Peter 2.15. And then finally, First Peter 3.15, he says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you, a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Well, still we're looking at the question of how we... Break the commandment, what is forbidden in the commandment and another point which we have to consider, one that has arisen through the centuries. Everything that I read uh, dealt with this going back to Calvin. And again, it's just interesting to note that the way in which Calvin frames the reformed arguments and everybody follows suit, everybody. And so in a way, you just have to read Calvin. Well, the question that he asked with regard to the third commandment in, uh, in fact, it's the biggest thing that he goes into Is the taking of oaths. In the institutes. The question of whether taking oaths. Or swearing. Is a violation of the third commandment. The objection of some. To taking oaths. Is based upon what our Lord said. And what we read earlier. Is the scripture reading. Matthew chapter 5. Verses 33 through 37. And it is important. As I said. When we read it. To actually understand. And listen to the words Jesus is saying. It's too easy to isolate the statement. I read. I read. Uh, four verses, or five, five verses. And yet so often what is isolated is simply the phrase as a kind of slogan, swear not at all. And that becomes an absolute prohibition to take an oath ever, uh, it is said, is to sin against God and to break the third commandment. But that would be to miss the context in which this statement was made, it is true, Jesus says, swear not at all, but he says far more. The context uh, which gives it its true meaning, the phrase, swear not at all. And so listen again to the full statement. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall... Perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. But the first thing you notice is that Jesus is interacting with the rabbinic tradition, the tradition of the Jews and the Pharisees and the scribes. He's not interested in overturning scripture. He says that uh, very early on in the Sermon on the Mount. I didn't come to overturn the law, but to fulfill it. That's what he's doing here. He isn't saying, well, scripture said this, but I'm telling you something different. What he is uh, doing, therefore, is dealing with the false interpretation of scripture and then overturning that. But even then, you notice the scripture they cited, that is the Jews, did not forbid the use of oaths, only false oaths. You shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform your oaths to the Lord. Don't swear a false oath. Be certain that when you swear an oath, you keep it. And yet the Pharisees did something very clever, like when we say gosh instead of God. Recognizing God hated the false oath and that he required them to keep their oaths. You shall perform what you have promised. They swore not by God's name, but by heaven or by earth or by their head, thinking that they could invoke the force of an oath in their speech to lend credence to what they were saying, but then escape the penalty of breaking it because they didn't really mean to keep it simply because they didn't use the name of God. Invoking the force of the oath, but not the force of the penalty, clever sophistry. But Jesus tells them it's really the same thing since heaven is his throne and earth is his footstool. And so to invoke these things to swear by heaven or earth is in reality to invoke the name better not to swear at all than to swear falsely. In other words, don't swear by heaven or earth or or your head. None of these things are proper objects of oaths. Stop all the games and the clever tricks. Jesus is saying, just speak honestly Anything more than that is evil. It proceeds from evil intentions, from a desire to deceive and to break God's law. To borrow from something good, an oath, in order to do something evil, which is to lie. But that doesn't mean we can never take an oath. An oath which requires that we invoke the name of God and that in doing so we recognize that God requires of us what we promise. And if we take an oath we don't mean to keep, then we're obviously using God's name in vain. There's no way to take an oath, in other words, and escape the force of the third commandment. You're always under it every time you invoke the name of God or anything associated with it. But to take an oath on a proper occasion, as Paul did, as Jesus did, as God did when he uh, swore to Abraham. An oath with every intention of keeping it. Is actually an act of religious devotion. Something that honors God and his name. Something that keeps the third commandment. There's an abundance of scripture to prove this is so. I've just referred to uh, many passages without citing them. But suffice it to say that at times God requires oaths of us. And at other times we find God himself taking oaths. And so there's really no difficulty here uh, from the Christian standpoint about taking oaths. Just stop the games, Jesus is saying, and be honest. And so positively, we honor God when our speech is honest, when no lie is found in our mouth. And especially when in invoking his name in the form of an oath, it is done in a way to honor his name by making proper and honest oaths that we intend to keep. But let me point out one last way that we might break The third commandment, and that is by bad theology. Our beliefs, our teaching about God are one of the ways either by which we honor or dishonor him. But especially I'm referring to what is forbidden. Bad theology dishonors God because it lies about him. The man who has bad theology in his teaching lies about God. He says things about him that aren't true. He describes God in ways that robs him of his glory. All bad theology is guilty of the same cardinal error, that it lies about God, that it describes his name and his being and his glory falsely. And so makes him something that is less than God. Take Arminianism, for example. Arminianism, I'm saying, breaks the third commandment. In describing a view of God that is not absolutely sovereign over all things, even the will of man, they really portray God in such a way that he's no God at all. I don't say that lightly, but I do say it seriously. Arminians are guilty of profaning the name of God. I'm not saying that these people aren't Christians, but like Spurgeon and Martin Lloyd-Jones, I'm saying that they're Christians in spite of themselves and their bad theology, but they're still sinning and they ought to repent. Bad theology is not something you just ignore. The third commandment tells us we can't. The name of God is too precious. And what is theology but a study of God himself? And when our study of God leads us to say things about God that aren't true. And that make him seem in some way less than one who is God, the Lord. Well, you see, that is to take his name in vain. But then... Lastly, and in the third place, following the Shorter Catechism, it asks the question, what is the reason annexed to the third commandment? And uh, you find the reason annexed in the word for, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. That's the reason we should keep it. This is the answer, according to the Shorter Catechism, the reason annexed to the third commandment is that, however, the breakers of this commandment may escape punishment from men. I especially like how they put that. Yet the Lord our God will not suffer them to escape his righteous judgment. Uh, what man do you know ever suffered in this world for breaking the third commandment? Obviously, I think the answer is no one. And yet we find here in this answer and in the commandment itself that the Lord is the one who will deal with the transgressor. Now, this reason annexed is very similar to what we find at the end of the second commandment. The reason annexed is a warning and it's a terrible warning. You see, man may not notice. He may not care. In fact, we know he doesn't. Nothing is more common among man today than to blaspheme the name, to treat it as nothing, as something that doesn't matter, as a kind of curse word, if anything. But you see, what the Lord is saying is that he notices. Remember in giving the law who the Lord is. I am the Lord, your God. That's the first thing he says. And he's not just the lawgiver, but as the lawgiver, he's the judge of all. Yes, and he's keeping stock. He notices everything we do. He wants to see what we do with this law. He doesn't just give the law and then say, well, you keep what you want. I don't really care. No, in giving the law what he's saying, and this is what the reason annex reminds us about. You had better pay attention. Here's the righteousness of my kingdom. Remember that before Jesus brought the kingdom of God, it was found in Israel very imperfectly, but it was there and nowhere else. And like any kingdom, there are laws which govern it and which, if transgressed, carry the penalty of the law, which is all that God is saying here in the kingdom of God. Never mind the kingdom of man. This is a law which, if broken, will be punished. The Lord will not hold him guiltless, which is to say uh, positively he will regard him as guilty, as a transgressor, as a lawbreaker. And he will surely punish the transgressor. Is that not the lesson of the whole law and every commandment? Do we not learn that we are transgressors by the law itself? That the Lord will hold will not hold us guiltless when we break his law. Well, I won't repeat all the arguments here. We know that salvation and life are not by the law. No man was ever saved by keeping it, but many were damned by breaking it. There's only one way of escape and of pardon. And that is the simple way of faith in Jesus Christ. Once we realize by the law that we are transgressors and that we are guilty before God. But as Jesus reminds us, I don't just want to stop with that. As Jesus reminds us in the Sermon on the Mount, it is his disciples now to whom the kingdom of God belongs. And in whom the righteousness of the kingdom is revealed. And because of this, they of all people ought to keep this law. Knowing, as Jesus describes again in Matthew chapter six, that the searching eye of their father who art in heaven is always upon them. And even what it is, man does not notice. God notices. He notices everything, even the secret motions of the heart and the prayer that you said in secret. There is nothing that escapes his notice. And it is realizing that that inspires us to keep the law. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter six. Not only that, but Matthew chapter seven, we realize that even we will have to give an account at the end of our lives. Well, who cares what man thinks? This was the essential problem of the Pharisees. They only practice their religion to be seen by men. But Jesus tells us that his disciples will keep the law for another reason, and that is to be seen by God. And to glorify God in the day of visitation. That is the day of judgment. And that is the exact principle that's found here. In the reason annexed to it. That God notices even that which man does not. Or which if he does he doesn't think is important. Man will not find you to be very sinful if you break this commandment. But God will. As we live our lives a crucial test as to whether those lives are pleasing to him is found in this commandment. This single commandment. And do we think As Christians, we can profane the name or treat it as a lighter, vain thing, and he won't notice and he won't hold us, even us, his very own children, guilty of breaking it. I'm not saying he'll throw you into hell. Thank God he can never do that, nor would he want to. Not now that Jesus has shed his blood. Not if you're a true child of God. And in truth, God has always loved the elect. He has loved them from eternity. But that doesn't mean that you can now safely break the law and ignore the warning found in this commandment. The reason annexed to it belongs to you. The law is given first and foremost to those to whom the kingdom is given and belongs. And if you break the law, God is saying, He'll make you pay for it. He'll make you suffer as a transgressor. He'll chasten and afflict you. You will not hold him guiltless who takes the name in vain. Besides, Why would you ever want to do this? Why would you ever want to take his name in vain? Better for us all to say, this is my God, the Lord, whom I love. Ever will I bless his name. Yes, and let us do so now by singing another hymn. Praise to God. Hymn number 133. And please stand.